Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student, back with two more stellar students who are going to introduce themselves and the topic. Who's first? So my name is Yasmin Krenza. I'm a third year medical student, and we're going to be talking about hoarding disorder today. So Yasmin, um, most of the time when students are here, I think one of the very interesting things about the podcast is hearing what people's thoughts are about where they're headed in medicine. Any idea what direction medicine will take you yet? Yeah, so in the beginning of third year, I was really thinking about family medicine and psychiatry. Family med was the first rotation that I had, and I really enjoyed it, but then I came here. And, <laughs> and we drove you away? No, you <laughs> brought me closer, a lot closer, so was a little worried about that for a yeah, minute. No. I, I, I often know the answer to these questions. Um, any, any special reason, any particular reason why you felt like psychiatry was the right fit for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it fits um, my personality. I'm a very patient and understanding person, and I like to get to know patients on a deeper level. And I just really love the pathology and the pharmacology. Kind so, of grabs you in. Yeah, I find it extremely interesting. So I think I can see myself doing this for the rest of my life. That's very, very cool. <laughs> you two are a great team together. Uh, Jason is here with you. Jason, how about introducing yourself? So I am also a third-year medical student with Rocky Vista. I'm interested in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Don't get me wrong. I have enjoyed psychiatry a lot. <laughs> there's there's no guilt here. It's um, my my goal is that people who come to the hospital enjoy the rotation they have, are exposed to um, the very ill patients that we have, and it's demystified on some level so that when my patients are in your care as a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist, that doesn't make you nervous. You're kind of used to it now, right? There's no, there's no surprise. There's no concern. There's no. Um, fear that drives you away from providing the best care. So no, no reason to be worried about that choice. In fact, I think that's a great choice. Um, and I think it's a great fit for you. You and I talked a little bit about this as well. Tell, tell people why you felt like it was a good fit for you. First, it works definitely to my strengths. I'm very much a musculoskeletal person. That's where I excelled at school, felt the most comfortable. But I also just love that human-to-human, -human, like just that interaction with that aspect. And that is where I see myself being the happiest in medicine. Uh, I think this is something that you brought up, and I'm assuming you bring it with all of your students, right? The majority. You have to, you have to be okay with the treatments, and even if the patients don't necessarily get all the way better or 100%. Um, and that's some area that I think I will be okay with that. It's a, it's a job where I think you will work with traumatic brain injuries quite a bit. There is a lot of overlap with medicine and in, with psychiatric medicine in that regard with how brain and behavior are linked. So you did a great job. Both of you did a great job on this rotation. I really enjoyed having the two of you here. And I'm really excited about this topic. So hoarding, how did you pick this topic? <laughs> Well, we actually have a patient on the unit who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but then we also find out that he has hoarding disorder, 
Um, he likes to collect things, a lot of things in his house, and I just thought that that was very interesting. And I also grew up watching uh, Hoarders and Hoarding Buried Alive on TV, and <laughs> I just, it's just very interesting. <laughs> as we get started, was there anything that surprised you as we dove into the literature? Like something that stuck out? For me, for example, it was fires, right? There, there's this really high rate of people who hoard, get in fires and trapped in those fires and die. I was shocked by that. Was there something along those lines that stuck out to you guys? I just took the, the most interesting little tidbit, maybe. <laughs> uh, I think for, for me, I wasn't 100% sold when we kind of decided this topic, to be honest. Of course, I'm on PM&R. I want to look at TBIs, which there's a great podcast on that. Take a listen. But the more I dove into it, uh, I was kind of shocked how little literature there actually was on this and how relatively new. Um, in my mind, you know, I felt like hoardings, that's probably something that's been happening for a long time. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and, you know, maybe there's articles that show some signs of that, but uh, just how kind of niche this topic was. And I felt that was actually really neat. And just yeah. kind of cool, and you know, if you're sitting around the table, you want to talk about something really cool and niche, hoarding's the topic. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you you kind of went along with Yasmin, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yasmin, tell us how you ended up in the in the topic of hoarding. Oh, you already did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, the most like shocking part for me um, was learning about why someone engages with compulsive hoarding. Um, I just thought, like on the surface, it's just a very bizarre behavior, you know, um, collecting things to the point where you can't even uh, ambulate throughout your house. And especially if, you know, you're living with um, loved ones, you're putting them in danger. It's, it's a very self-destructive type of behavior. And um, the reasons why, you know, they do this, the cognitions behind it is because um, it can remind them of a memory or it can make them feel better. Like it, it fills like this emotional void that they have. And they also, um, they develop like this sense of control over the possessions. Like mm -hmm. these are my things and don't mess. Exactly. They don't want anyone touching it or getting so rid of you it. Were, you were surprised by the cognitions around the condition then. Yeah. So as you dove into it, you said, okay, I can't understand why anybody in the world would hoard things. Right. But then as you started looking at it, you went, okay, now I kind of see that. Yeah. I think that's one of the fun things about psychiatry overall is uh, here at the state hospital, most of the students kind of have that aha moment, which is, oh, well, I... I kind of get how it happens, right? And and the link between brain and behavior and how different brains do things differently, right? And how we can address those both through therapies and, and medications. So let's start with the case example. And, and I think this whole podcast is fairly high yield for hoarding. And there are not going to be many questions on hoarding, so the podcast isn't high yield even though this is a pretty meaty podcast. Mm -hmm. Does that sound about accurate? So let's do a yeah. case scenario. Who's got it? I can take that. 
A physically healthy 53-year-old woman is referred to her local mental health team for management of depression and anxiety. On questioning, she reports that she has been living in the basement of her apartment building, eating in restaurants, and using a local gym for showers. Her own apartment is so full of clothes, magazines, books, suitcases, and boxes jam-packed with items that she is no longer able to get that she is no longer able to get in the door. The mere thought of discarding anything makes her into intolerably anxious and upset. She reports having had difficulties discarding possessions for as long as she can remember. How should she be evaluated and treated? What's the answer? <laughs> that, that's a great, great question. I'm not, so you guys have, I think you guys have only run across maybe one or two shelf questions. Yeah. Is it more about recognizing the condition than anything else? Yeah, and also knowing the treatment for it. Recognition and knowing the treatment. What is the treatment according to your shelf prep work? I think it's CBT. I, is it CBT? I, I actually just assumed that there wasn't a treatment recognized, and so that's something that they wouldn't hit on. But like I said, I only was able to recognize it from the one question I had, which is once you understand what hoarding disorder is, it's pretty easy to spot out. So let's go ahead and jump to how do you, what is hoarding? How would you diagnose that? There, the DSM, um, who, who, before we do that, who knows the history of the DSM? I think one of you knows that better than I do. I'm sure one of you knows that better than I do. <laughs> With the DSM and, and hoarding. Okay. So, yeah, hoarding specifically. I was like, don't ask me about the rest of the <laughs> like, yeah. Can you talk about hoarding? Uh, I'm your man. So. Hoarding technically wasn't even in the DSM as early as like DSM-4, you know, things like that. But with the newest edition, with the DSM-5 in 2013, I believe it was March, they added hoarding disorder to the DSM as a subtype of OCD. And that was in the 5? In the 5. So I thought it was a subtype of OCD in the 4. Was it in the 4? And then yeah. it became a set-aside in the, is it the anxiety section? In the 5. All right, we got a DSM yeah, right behind us. Like, Jason, I'm gonna I'm gonna task you I, on that because yeah. I think it's not a subtype now in the five. I think I, it's its own standalone now. Yeah, I think it's in the OCD and related disorders section. family yeah. section. So, so no, it's it's easier to look for. Yeah. So um, while you're doing that, I'm gonna go ahead and talk a little bit about the criteria that exist now. So one of the the early so it, there there were a lot of people that started talking about OCD. But I want to say that it wasn't as prominent in the literature until maybe 2008, 2004. There, that's when it seemed like we started seeing a lot more. But there were a few people um, even before that. And I think there was a guy named Hartle in 96 that was requoted by Stikati and Frost. The, uh, three guys were three people. I think uh, Stikati might, might be her, not him. But, um, yeah, OCD and related disorders, we've got to check on that part, that section. So what he said, Hartle said, or she, the acquisition of and failure to discard possessions that are useless or of limited value, resulting in clutter that renders living spaces unusable for their intended purpose and causes significant distress and impairment. The DSM focuses more on discarding than it does on the acquisition. I think most of the things we read suggested that both are equally as important and that maybe the emotions about the object are really what drives the behavior, whether it's acquisition or, or discarding the, the item. 
Um, what's really interesting is that uh, the criteria of the DSM, if you can kind of remember that first statement though, failure to discard items that are, uh, acquisition of and failure to discard possessions that are useless or of limited value resulting in clutter. And so the DSM essentially captures that with a couple of addition caveats like the DSM might say things like, even if third parties clean up the space, it, it rapidly uh, returns to the state of disorder. Um, a key component of all of these, though, is when, when we looked at the research and maybe the questionnaires that captured this information, in large part, most of these are driven by this relationship with the object. So the function of the behavior described the activity in many ways. Why did somebody choose to acquire an item? Why did somebody feel like a pamphlet was important to hold on to? Why did somebody feel like they couldn't throw away, throw it away? Um, and some of those um, questions we're going to talk about a little bit more, but I, uh, just to start people thinking, questions like fear, if I didn't know where it was, I would feel anxious. Um, what if I didn't get the information out of this? Uh, I think, Yasmin, you talked about this earlier, control over the items that belong to you. I'm responsible for this. Sometimes it was used as a memory device to have these things all around. And if you start thinking about those kinds of uh, functions for the behavior, I think that helps make sense as we go through this. Now, there, there was one other type of hoarding that we came across. Who, who's tackling animal hoarding versus object hoarding? I'll take that one as well. Because just, just thinking about this, is, it's super interesting. Because, you know, when you think about hoarding, a lot of times you think of objects. I don't know if in Hoarders or in other shows they really had yeah. animal hoarding. It, there were, like, a couple episodes here and there where it would be cats or hamsters, animals of those species. <laughs> I can imagine uh, lots of hamsters. Yeah. So to basically distinguish these, of course, like an animal versus an object, like say they collect magazines, you know, that can easily be seen and that's different. But uh, some of the other more subtle differences you may not think of um, is that with animal hoarding, you know, they don't want to give up the animals even if they are sick um, or even deceased at this point. You know, there's such a, a hold and uh, emotional response with that. And, and oftentimes there's frequent squalor. And for those that don't know what squalor is, I had my astute <laughs> fellow medical student, <laughs> Yasmin, explain that to me. <laughs> and that's more of like the living conditions in which you live in. And a lot of times with animal hoarding, and there's a lot of urine, feces, and just like even deceased animals um, on the floor. Whereas in object hoarding, you don't necessarily see a, a lot of that in it. It looks like these are comorbid sometimes, mm -hmm. these conditions. And uh, I, I think they often make the news, right? The, you know, somebody in such and such place. Now, one of the, I, while we were learning about this topic, I think a week or more ago, I asked the question, what is the relative percentage of hoarders? Hoarders is not the right word. People who hoard that are female versus male. And I inaccurately said it's about 95% female, right? And Yasmin, you were kind enough to say, Oh, what <laughs> are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and it looks like hoarding, and we won't talk about, we'll, we'll talk about numbers and percentages a little more later. We'll just leave it that hoarding of animals seems to be a predominantly female thing. That, that might be one exception. 
Yes, and that's what they saw in this study. And when you take into account, like, that's pretty much who they had for the study with Frost in 2011, I believe. Frost being one of the guys that, that we have a lot of references from. Yeah, that's, if you find a paper on hoarding, there's a good chance Frost is. Frost, Tomlin, Stikati, and then a few others jump in and out yeah. periodically. And I think they did a pretty good job with those uh, their research. So um, I think my task was uh, genetics. I think I picked that up in part. And there are a couple of syndromes, like uh, Prader-Willi is associated with hoarding. That's a... Uh, 2211 deletion syndrome. There's something called Bardet-Beetle syndrome, B-I-E-D-L, and that's an autosomal recessive ciliopathy uh, characterized by retinitis, pigmentosa, I'm definitely reading this, obesity, polydactyly, hypogonadism, and intellectual disability, and the case reports include hoarding behaviors. Um, that's also a 22, a chromosome 22 item. Then there's also some association with hoarding with uh, neurotrophic tyrosine kinase receptor type 3, NTRK3. I don't know what gene that comes off of. I don't see that immediately. Uh, again, there's uh, one C to G SNP located in the binding site for MIRN 485-3P, which shows a significant association with hoarding. The problem with this is that they have some luciferase, luciferase tests and I think that's, is that the red one that shows up on the under fluoroscopy, fluoroscopic microscope, microscopy? <laughs> so, um, wow, I'm out of my league here. But apparently it, they can't really make it work with the binding of that, of that molecule. So it, it seems like maybe there's you know, a lot more to the story that we don't know. Suffice to say that there's some hints that some genes might be involved whether those are related to things like developmental issues like the uh, cardiofacial syndrome, with that impaired pharyngeal arch development or not, uh, is hard for me to know. I don't know that we have that kind of information yet. So uh, just know that there's some stuff that's hinted at genetically. Uh, what about hoarding in children? Yeah, so uh, I found this information in, in one of our papers and they, they mentioned children um, which I hadn't really thought about before, um, but there are also like very few studies that have examined hoarding in children. Um, but collecting objects is, is actually a normal child, childhood behavior. Did that, so, did that give you pause when you read that the first few times? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up with like younger siblings and the toy area always got pretty cluttered and messy so that we, wasn't like a like I wasn't su totally surprised by that I was a little bit surprised because it implies a couple of things it to me the way I read this was it's normal for kids to want to have their stash of stuff and I wasn't sure if it was sec for security or for my toys but it was like this is me and what I own and my domain and I was surprised right. by that a little bit but I, I think it's also like an aspect of impulse like children as soon as they see something at the store they're gonna be like oh I want that I want that Barbie I want that Jason and, I weren't, Jason and I weren't like that. <laughs> so, it's very easy. Like if they were left to their own devices it would be very easy for them to collect as many items as possible. Um, yeah. But uh, that's also partly why it's difficult to tease out the differences um, with children because parents uh, 
are preventing the buildup of toys. And acquisition is also less of an issue in children because they don't have access to um, financial means in order to buy whatever they want. That's mostly in control of parents. Um, but one study showed that uh, hoarding children experience intense emotional upset uh, that accompanies uh, parents' attempts to remove the possessions. But I'm wondering, you know, how is that different from That's a temper tantrum? Yeah, uh, like... <laughs> I, I struggle to understand that a little bit as well. But I think... Um, I think that's probably the best guess we have on how to separate out who might have a who a child that may have a difficulty, right? Yeah. Um, I do think that that intense emotional upset probably stands out a little bit, right? Because I think you can say, "Hey, we need to get rid of this pamphlet," yeah. and having somebody that becomes immediately dysregulated by that. Uh, Differential diagnosis for schizophrenia. I thought this was really interesting. You mean hoarding disorder? Did I say schizophrenia? Yeah, yeah you did. <laughs> I do that a lot. <laughs> you know it's on my mind most of the time, right? Yeah. Uh, I can't. By the way, did you know that velocardiofacial syndrome has some links to schizophrenia too? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. That or, yeah, I think it was that one. Um, so differential diagnosis. One of, the, one of the challenges with this, and I'm not sure who's picking this up. One of the challenges is that... Hoarding was an OCD subtype for a very long time. So a lot of the research we looked at, I think, became only more meaningful when people said, hey, we think this is something different, right? Whether it is or not, I, I don't know that I have a, a great answer to that. But a lot of people seem to think that there is some differences between these conditions and maybe enough that you need different therapies for them. So. Even the other thing that's really difficult is that there's a hugely comorbid OCD plus hoarding, right? You can have both conditions, and you can also have hoarding with uh, uh, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder because there's this uh, line in there about that uh, tendency to hang on to stuff, right? So how would you tell the difference between hoarding and OCD, and then how would you tell the difference between Hoarding and OCPD. Anybody have that one? If not, I'll try and pick it up. I know. I think I wrote some of this text, but it kind of scares me. So I think it's a challenge. Um, in the Stikati, in some of, one of the Stikati example samples, for example, more than fifty percent of the people met hoarding and OCD, and I think that was a, a hoarding study. Um, the separation would be about the emotions associated with the hoarding, right? So uh, OCD, it's an unwanted or intrusive thought. Hoarding has this overwhelming positive valence to the object. And again, I keep going back to the object and, and the emotions about the object. And that was how I felt like was the best way to distinguish those two things. Any distress that comes, in other words, in, in most of our illness conditions, I think we have to be able to say that whatever somebody is doing has some sort of maladaptive outcome, right? It's distressful, it's difficult to complete tasks or jobs. And generally speaking, the only time you actually see distress from hoarding behaviors 
is like the consequences of that hoarding, right? For example, maybe somebody is harassed by their family members uh, about making changes or perhaps they have to go to the gym to right. shower. They can't use their bathtub anymore because it's filled. Another thing that I'm wondering is because with hoarding disorder, like that compulsion is focused mostly on objects, but with OCD, um, those compulsions and obsessions could be about a variety of things, not just objects. Not just the objects, correct. I think that's true. There's also some information that says that OCD waxes and wanes. Um, I think that's associated with stress and anxiety, and I believe that hoarding disorder tends to get worse over time. I think a lot of our demographic information showed that people become more disabled by that the older they become. Yeah, yeah. and hoarding disorder, um, it's, I think it also starts at a younger age. I read that and I didn't know what to make of that. I didn't feel like the data was solid enough on that to, that I understood it. Yeah. I didn't understand the way the study separated that out, but I saw that as well. And yeah. it's kind of hard to tell because there haven't been studies done for children. Like there's that one article we talked about, but that's pretty much all we have, you know, that hasn't been thoroughly researched and whatnot. But another thing that I kind of noticed with the differences from an article is that insight kind of plays a good role in it. Because oh, yeah. in the DSM it has you specify is it good, like moderate or no insight, and this kind of talks about how OCD versus hoarding disorder, there's less insight generally with those generally, with hoarding yeah. disorder because mm. they see nothing wrong, they, you know, and I know that can happen with OCD, but it seems like more likely they have some insight into that, and they have to do it whether they want to or not. Yeah. It seemed like more of a trend, didn't it? Uh, yeah. It wasn't an absolute. I would have liked something more absolute, um, but take yeah. what you can get. Yeah, that and that was one difference that we learned between um, OCD and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. With OCD, it's more ego-dystonic, so they recognize that it's a problem and they want to do something about it. Whereas versus OCPD, they don't see anything wrong with their own personality. So I think the other thing with OCPD is um, the, the emotions in hoarding directed towards the object are very strong. Where I think in uh, OCPD, the issue is, have I fully extracted the use out of that rather than how the emotions are about that? Mm -hmm. Which I think is a very subtle difference. I think it would be very hard to, to sort these out with just, uh, just a few clues. I think you'd need more clues. Um, so how would you evaluate hoarding? I, let's suppose that I walk into a clinic and I say, hey, I have a lot of anxiety. I don't think we normally ask about hoarding. No. no. Like... Let's be honest, when people are coming in for anxiety, depression, I imagine hoarding's like not even there and like train of thought, not even in the room mm. when someone first comes in. And and I'm not sure, is, is there a question in the why box, like just about hoarding? I think there might be, but I think some of the stuff we read said that the why box doesn't help you really sort out the diagnosis very well. Yeah, and right. that's what is used fairly often, at least earlier on, it was widely used. That's kind of what they did use, but everything from, especially from Frost and Skitaki and stuff like that, it's not really that great at it. So yeah. there are a handful of inventories. Oh yeah. Let's talk about a couple of the, so let's, let's suppose that you're in a primary care clinic and you just want to scan for it. Maybe 
with people that have anxiety, you're, you're tracking it. So you give somebody a hoarding questionnaire. Tell me about uh, what hoarding questionnaires you thought stood out based on the data you read. I think we read about four or five. Tell me what worked, tell me what doesn't work, and just kind of talk to me about it. Yeah, so we have the, the savings inventory revised questionnaire. Um, and it's the most widely used assessment tool for hoarding disorder. And it's shown evidence of good reliability and validity. And it consists of 23 items and it has three subscales. And they ask a variety of questions about clutter, uh, difficulty discarding, and excessive acquisition. So, and I, th I think that adds kind of back to that original definition we had, which was acquisition, discarding, right. but now we've, we've added kind of to that the functional effect, right? Has it got to the point where you can't use your home? Mm -hmm. So I, I really like it. I think even though we sometimes read this as the most widely used tool, we don't always see it be the tool that always shows up. I thought this tool showed up over and over and over in the articles that I read. Yeah. yeah. And we see that um, another rating scale was also kind of built on to kind of top of that, and that's the hoarding rating scale interview. And it has similar components to that savings inventory where it kind of focused on clutter, difficulty, discarding, and excessive acquisition. But I like to also kind of, like you were saying, Dr. Round, it adds in that distress and impairment aspect of it. And it, it's a simple five questions, and I like how it's, um, it's very open-ended, too. It's not a yes or a no. It's a okay, you know, and allows them to talk about it. And that gives you a little bit more insight into, you know, is this more of a collecting you know idea they really like a lot of things or is this more leaning towards okay this is seeming more impairment. like an impairment with that hoarding disorder yeah i thought the questions were great yeah. as well uh do you want to read those yeah i'd love to so first is because of the clutter or number of possessions how difficult is it for you to use the rooms in your home to what extent do you have difficulty discarding or recycling selling ordinary things that other people would get rid of to what extent do you currently have a problem with collecting free things or buying more things that you need or can use or can't afford? To what extent do you experience emotional distress because of clutter, difficulty discarding, or problems with buying or acquiring things? And lastly, to, ex to what extent do you experience impairment in your life, like your daily routine, job, social activities, because of clutter, difficulty discarding, or problems with buying or acquiring things? So I think that's a great way to assess the, the illness, the nature of the illness. One of the things I was probably most fascinated by, I know I say that a lot, but I really liked the way that, and I think this was Stikati and his group, I think he was the lead author on this article with the uh, hoarding rating scale uh, I interview. I liked the way he, and may, maybe she, I yeah, think I think her first name is Gail. Gail, G-A-I-L. Yeah. So yeah, I keep saying he, but I'm pretty sure Gail is uh, Mrs. Dr. Stikati. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure I'm saying the last name correctly, to be honest, but I hope I am. Um, because I, I'm incredibly impressed with the amount of work these three people have done. And, and I think there's an interesting story behind some of this that we're going to get to in just a few minutes, I hope. Uh, so the nature of hoarding, the way that um, Dr. Stikati and her group built the the hoarding rating skill interview was very fascinating. They looked at a lot of research prior to this and they said, okay, what are the things that keep popping up? And then when, when they had people who they felt like had hoarding, and it feels like this is backwards in some ways, the, those 
things that most consistently pulled those people into the group, into a common ground group. Uh, they call this factor analysis, if I understand the way they did this correctly. And out of this factor analysis, the questions that they asked were so interesting to me. So, like the question on emotional attachment. Um, I, I think these are comments that people made about emotional attachment too, right? So they actually put text in from what people were saying. So uh, people would say things like, this possession provides me with emotional comfort. If I did not know where this is, I would feel anxious. Control, and I feel like that has some overlap with the control over the possessions, right? Um, I like to maintain sole control over my things. No one has the right to touch my possessions. These are quotes. Responsibility, I am responsible for finding a use for this possession. If this possession may be of use to someone else, I am responsible for saving it for them. And that responsibility kind of blew me away, right? There were a lot of different ways that people felt compelled, some sort of duty or relationship to the object. I keep saying that, I know. Um, they felt like hoarding behaviors probably correlated most with difficulty discarding and not necessarily collecting, right? And I'm I'm unfamiliar. Was this done before the DSM-5? Yeah, so I think this was uh, clear back in like 2010. I think this was DKT, and they were trying to... This this was actually done to build the uh, HRSI right. interview. Yeah, yeah. The interview. So, so I think this was well before that. Yeah, because, I mean, this can definitely help develop the criteria. It seemed yeah. like it, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think there were a lot of things that, as, as like this factor analysis and some of the other things really led to that, I thought. Um, I thought it was also fascinating, and I think I think you put this comment in this, Yasmin, the, yeah. as, the emotions associated with losing possessions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the hoarding behaviors strongly correlated um, with obsessive-compulsive symptoms, but the most surprising finding was that there was a strong relationship um, between these behaviors and symptoms of anxiety. And this makes sense because hoarders... Uh, people who hoard uh, may have a heightened sense of anxiety when it comes to the discarding the items. Mm -hmm. So that completely made sense to me. It's not anxiety having the items, it's anxiety discarding them. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I think you added another comment that followed about experiencing loss and grief, almost as if somebody had died. These, these inanimate objects have this really important relationship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this actually reminds me of one of the episodes that I watched, um, the story of Eric. Um, he was a, an older gentleman um, in his 50s who was struggling with uh, chronic pain from his scoliosis, and he was living with, with his wife, who he was married to for many years, but then she developed a rare form of cancer, and she passed away. And even while they were married, um, he exhibited like hoarding symptoms, but she was always in control of that. She was able to keep a check in on it. Exactly. She was able to keep a check on it. And he was her primary caregiver during her illness. And when she passed away, he took it very hard. And he never got over that grief so on top of the fact that he he admits in the episode that it was harder for him to make decisions 
without her, <laughs> which is a theme that we come up with over and over again in our research is that... Um, indecisiveness. Yeah, indecisiveness is a huge aspect of, uh, of the illness, but he also admits that hoarding um, is a coping mechanism for his grief, and uh, most of his items were in relation to his wife. Like, mm. you know, she loved, because she was really into interior designing, so it was like pieces of furniture or like art pieces, and he's like, that's my Sylvie, you know? Yeah, if I throw that away, I'm throwing away. Exactly, Sylvie. exactly. I, th I think... Um, one of the things we see in schizophrenia is that any time there is distress or anxiety, hallucinations get worse. I wonder, as I'm listening to you describe this, if situations where anxiety is worsened or bereavement in this case, if that also kicks up the symptomology, the difficulty making that decision about discarding something, right, being able to give it true valence. And then I, I think that indecisiveness, not getting rid of it, is just kicking the can down the road. Right. I have to use that proverb next time we do mental status exam. <laughs> <laughs> um, epidemiology. Now, there were a lot of studies, I think, that we saw. I think I hacked them all out because I didn't think they were as good as the one we kept. And not only was it uh, clearly great authors with Hatch, <laughs> and De La Cruz. <laughs> and De La Cruz. Um, I think Hatch De La Cruz, right? It looked like it was... Yeah. Uh, in any case, Jason's last name is Hatch, so he was uh, he had some affinity for this, and I couldn't discard the art article. I couldn't just throw it away. <laughs> um, so I, I do think this was probably a better study, and do you want to kind of give us some epidemiology, what, how they figured out kind of what the numbers are, why it was a decent study? Because I do think this was yeah. better numbers than what we found in other yeah, places. Yeah, and especially with this article, it had a pretty large group, especially for this study, because um, it had 1,698 participants, and at least in their first wave. And at this point, uh, I believe... They had a lot more um, criteria. They had the DSM-5 at this time because we see a lot of these earlier um, epidemiological studies were done kind of before it was its own criteria. And we had a better idea of what hoarding disorder was a little bit more at this time. And uh, basically what they found was that the prevalence of like 1.5% um, of those with hoarding disorder um, in this group. And there was a confidence interval about 0.7 to 2.2. And what was interesting, and we might have already talked about this a little bit, but this is more likely to be found in older individuals um, and those that are in financial difficulties and unmarried. And that kind of might be more to the indecisiveness if you don't have another partner in the home, right? Until you get rid of it. Until you get rid of it, right? And um, also, it just it's more likely to be um, uh, comorbid with other conditions. Um, other physical health conditions. And what was super interesting about like the gender differences in this study is that, you know, we've kind of talked about, you know, the problems and hard time discarding. This one kind of talked a little bit about the acquisition of these as well and how women are more likely to buy in order to acquire um, a lot of these things. And men are more likely to acquire free things, which I thought was very interesting. <laughs> you know? um, it's only valuable if you pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, where men would say, hey, it's free. <laughs> and at that point, that's what makes it valuable. Um, and so that just, and that kind of 
you know, fits the stereotype that, you know, women are more compulsive buyers, but um, that's super interesting what came from that study. Yeah. It was interesting because they, they recognized there's some challenges with the study. They uh, went door to door to find people, mm-hmm. and that's that has some challenges with who you're finding and not finding. And they used a screening tool of the 99 people of the what, roughly 1,700 that screened positive. Only 19 actually met the DSM criteria. And, and so it's, uh, I think it says a couple of things about the screening tools that are being used. Maybe they're not as sensitive as we would like them to be. Maybe they're very specific, though. Maybe they're going to get everybody, right? Mm-hmm. But the other thing that is worth noticing is that people that are hoarding tend to get evicted, have forced cleanings be removed, have dependents removed, not as likely to answer the door because of risks associated with having their children taken away, with having the health department there and so forth. So so it might be that uh, the community sample that they obtained is low. Now, it, it still is in the ballpark of uh, generally what we saw. I think everybody quoted 2 to 4%. You had a Samuel study mm-hmm. uh, out of Hopkins that is a different number. Almost everybody, uh, all of the articles that we're reading at this point seem to be quoting that 2 to 4%. Yeah, and... And just to add into kind of the madness of trying to find that prevalence, we realized that a lot of people just saw a hoarding disorder with OCD initially, right? Those two kind of came hand in hand. And so when you're trying to look at it as almost separate entities, that can definitely make the number a little bit more messy. So just always keep that in mind. Yeah, I I think this is our best data to point and the other stuff we kind of decided not to hang on to. Um, Comorbidities. I looked at this like seven times. I, I don't know what to make of this. Anything you have to, either of you guys know what to make of this? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was good that they compared, you know, they they recruited uh, participants who met the newly formed criteria of hoarding disorder, and they compared it to participants with OCD, and they found that um, rates of major depressive disorder and acquisition control disorders were higher in the hoarding disorder group compared to the OCD group. And also ADHD was a more frequent comorbidity with hoarding disorder, which was really interesting to me. I didn't really know what to make of that. Yeah, I didn't either. Put an asterisk asterisk by that because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I've come across that in different papers that um, those with hoarding disorder uh, have problems with attention span. So... We, we saw yeah. some of that, but what seems to hold up most is that decision-making, doesn't it? And maybe, yeah. maybe the other thing is how it's judged, so executive function on some level. Right. Um, yeah. Suffice to say that depression. Yeah. Um, I think antisocial personality disorder showed up, yeah. but just yeah. it just wasn't compelling to me, and it was a distinction between hoarding disorder and OCD, and so I, I don't think we know truly what's comorbid with hoarding disorder. That's yeah. kind of where I was left with. And uh, I, 
would bet that you know more more articles that come out would find some other you know like they'll just keep adding on at this point it, there's no solid evidence for like one specific comorbidity besides like I said OCD besides OCD right that seems yeah. to be truly comorbid yeah. uh, some interesting brain stuff um, the study Jason I think you read this article I read your review of the article thought it was pretty cool and I think this is probably the Nakao article do you want to describe mm-hmm. how they looked at brain activity and what task they put people on while they were in the scanner? Yeah, so Yasmin actually looked at more of the fMRI study. I was oh. more into the PET scan study that was okay. done by uh, Saxena et al. in 2004. Do you want to tell so. me that, just very mm-hmm. briefly? Because I think talking about brain regions gets boring. Yeah, well, <laughs> and let's be honest, it's like we can tell you kind of what they've seen, but is it really going to answer how, why hoarding disorder is there? No, but essentially what they did is they looked at cerebral glucose metabolism in 2004 and used PET scans to look at the brain, like what areas are affected. And essentially what they found is that the posterior and the dorsal anterior cingulate gyrus basically had lower levels of glucose metabolism, so they weren't as active as in other areas, and just... The posterior cingulate gyrus is thought to help with like memory recollection, internally directed thought, or like focus and attention, which is mainly seen in like ADHD, post-traumatic brain injuries, and things like that. So, so, and I think we saw three or four other studies. It it felt like there was a lot of well, maybe this, maybe that, yeah. maybe gray matter. Yeah. But the 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 one thing that kept showing up was the anterior cingulate. Yeah. And, and then I think that showed up in the fMRI uh, study with the task. Do you want to tell us what the task was, how yeah. they did that? Oh, man, the task. If not, so, I will try and do it because I, yeah. I was really intrigued. So what they did is they had, like, if I, if I understood the way I read this, they had people in the scanner with an fMRI going on, right. actively going on. And then what they did is they said you, I think they looked at pictures of things? Yeah, it was either like a picture of, so it could have been like a piece of newspaper that was theirs or wasn't theirs. And then they had to choose whether to discard it or not, right? Right, right. And I think If it, it was, had a red box around it, then that was their object. So then they had to make the decision. Or they would tell them, okay, we're going to discard this. And then they would... You know, measure the activity in the cingulate gyre, right. the, the anterior cingulate. And I think they were looking at cortex and insula. So yeah. I, I think there's an anterior cingulate story, but we saw posterior anterior, uh, posterior anterior cingulate, I think is what you mentioned. <laughs> yeah. uh, we saw cortex, insula, but it looks like this area is probably where we're going to see that. Now, TBIs have shown up too. I think we saw a couple of case reports of people having a traumatic brain injury and then suddenly, suddenly start hoarding. Yeah, and like I said, there's mainly just a little bit in some papers. I wouldn't say it's overwhelming, but they saw that just in some of these post-TBI patients, they their behaviors changed, right? And, of course, with some of these scans, they could say, oh, it correlates with this, but um, find that super interesting that, you know, they would just kind of start hoarding, you know, out of nowhere. And I wish I could have uh, read more into that, and maybe more will be coming out soon. The TV yeah, because I think but that's uh, that's your... It's more of my ballpark. Yeah. Oh, we all used a different word. Uh, your bally w- bailiwick. <laughs> <laughs> Can you keep going? I don't even know what that means. Purview <laughs> domain. Oh, okay. Home turf, <laughs> ballpark. My house. Uh, treatment. Initial impressions with treatments. They're like 
there's like an article or so uh, on some of these treatments and at least from my understanding a lot of these there's no like hey this is what you do for someone with a hoarding disorder it's more of hey this kind of seems like it's working um it's so it seems it's more of like in the works and more proposed ideas of yeah. kind of what's going on and i know yasmin found a paper that was showing some promising yeah. um ways of how to attack that so i think this was the stika t frost um cbt stuff do you want to go ahead and yeah. talk about that and then when you're done i'll go ahead and jump into the stuff that's in clinicaltrials.gov yeah and has yeah. some stuff back yeah, so in this paper, um, decision-making training in CBT, um, they really go into detail about the uh, different aspects of the training. So uh, it had three components. Um, first, they would give uh, training in decision-making and organizational skills, um, and they would also have uh, the patients uh, categorize their possessions, you know, just to create some type of order. And then, and then like through the excavation process, because all of this would be happening as they're going through their house, um, trying to clean it up. Um, but as they go through their uh, excavation process, they would have the patients um, reflect on the feelings that they're experiencing as they're going through the objects, um, have them explore uh, their belief systems, um, and they would encourage the patient to verbalize their thoughts and feelings. And the actual excavation, the process would go, they would identify a target area, create a small number of categories into which the possessions were placed, and then they would move the category, uh, the, the objects into their proper destination. And then from there, decide on what to keep and what to get rid of. And in order to, uh, the outcome that they used was something called a clutter ratio to assess the severity of hoarding after they went through this entire process. And by the end of this case study, um, the mean clutter ratio fell from 0.54 to 0.02. Now I don't have here how many. Uh, That's actually a pretty big change. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I don't have in here how many participants were. Now is this in this paper? So is this part of? Th there were a lot of like overlapping languages. The thing I saw most often was something called crest, which is um, different than case management, right? It was. Cognitive rehabilitation and exposure sorting therapy, and I think that is what you're talking about when people go into the home. Yeah. Now, this is very expensive; takes months to do, right? So, um, I thought one of the things that really impressed me about the authors that we saw a lot, Tomlin, Stikati, and uh, Frost, apparently they're part of a community, and the community leaders came together and said, "Hey, listen, this is." can't afford this can you can you maybe get a book <laughs> or I, I actually I don't know if they said that but in my mind that was the conversation I, I, I heard and uh, what's really really impressive about this group of authors is they heard the message hey we can't afford to do this can you figure something else out so I tend to think that um, therapists physicians people that treat other people get a lot of ego in how important they are in the process, right? Um, but 
but for my choice of the medication that helped you, right? Um, <laughs> you would have never got well. Um, and, and so to be able to step aside from ego, this group actually wrote a book uh, called Buried in Treasure. And the Buried in Treasure book is available on Amazon. I think it's uh, 2014. And what they found is that what they call bibliotherapy, that's a guided sort of reading group, was actually helpful in uh, helping people make changes with cluttering. Now, I actually read through the reviews, and it was interesting because there was uh, there were a few reviews. They were largely like 80% were fives, but it looked like a lot of people that were reviewing this were therapists rather than people who were making changes, right? People that okay. were hoarding. But there were also a number of people that were like, that were saying right off the bat, wow, this is making a difference already. So I think the book might have more benefit independently to somebody that has insight into the condition. But I was favorably impressed with, uh, with the comments. So one of the uh, comments that I thought was incredible, incredibly revealing was that somebody said, I'm now hoping that my family member will be able to have company soon. And I thought, oh, wow, now that is interesting, yes. right? So this buried in treasure, it's like a, it's like a behavioral approach to this. It, it feels like there's a lot of CBT involved into it, in it. And it seems like that's where most of the data is. So, so I thought that was fascinating that, first of all, Tolan Frost and Stikati would, would kind of go, okay, well, we, we need some more tools out there. Let's see what we can do. So it's like a self-help book, but for hoarding? Yeah. Very interesting. It is, and and it, they have some small studies that say that facilitated reading groups seem to make a difference. I thought that was really fascinating. It, my estimation of these authors went up dramatically when I saw that. Right? It seems like most of the time people are trying to put barriers in into delivery of healthcare, and uh, they're clearly clearly going the opposite direction on that. And can I just add a little bit to that comment you read? Yeah. I I love that because, you know, the comment was, wasn't was, I'm glad you know, my family member is not going to hoard anymore. You know, it wasn't saying, you know, get rid of this disorder. It's that they can have company over. And I think if I've learned anything from the psych rotation, you know, you're not necessarily finding cure for a lot of these disorders, especially like schizophrenia and things like that. We're not going to completely make the voices go away. Not, not always. Right? Not always, right? And so it's more of let's manage it. Let's be able to mm-hmm. take it to a place where you can live the most complete life that you can and still work with what you have. And I think that comment right there just kind of like fit imperfect. And that's exactly what I learned from Psych This Rotation. Isn't that exactly what you want to do in PM&R? Yep. <laughs> that, that is, I was like, that's why I love that. So I just, I was like, you, you won't see my face, but I'm smiling so wide right now. <laughs> you really are. That's a, I love those smiles. I'll just mention a couple of other treatment articles. There was an article about Crest, which I think is what you were talking about, Yasmin. I think that's yeah. what it is. 40% improvement in hoarding versus 25% with the case management. Case management was the comparator. Um, they they did some, a lot of people have done neurocognitive outcomes on this to see how the therapies might change cognition, almost like cognitive remediation rather than cognitive rehabilitation. And they find some changes in cognitive flex, flexibility. And I thought this was, this was interesting that people who were able to make changes had improved inhibition. Huh. Improved inhibition. So I thought that might have something to do with acquisition of the items. What do you mean by improved inhibition? They were able to stop the impulse. 
Oh, I see. Yeah, I think that's what it. I think that's what it meant because I I, okay. I had to stop and think about that for a few minutes, and that's what I assume at the end of my, my thinking. Um, there was a study on stimulants. We read a lot about attentional kinds of aspects of this. There were four people in a open label trial. <laughs> Seems legit. <laughs> I, I, I listen. I, it added more to the literature than I've added. I can't throw too many stones, um, but I think it came out of this. I, I assume that it came out of this data on attentional stuff, right? And and like, hey, if you're desperate enough to help somebody change, I think I'd try anything. Yeah. And and I, it was listed more as a trial than it was as, as a case series. But in the back of my mind, I read it more as a case series. Mm-hmm. There was another uh, thing that was listed as a clinical trial by PubMed that was, again, another case report where somebody with RTMS um, with focus on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex had a dramatic improvement in symptoms of hoarding. There have been a couple of CBT groups, um, a CBT group in geriatric patients with 12 people over 65 didn't show a ton. Three out of uh, 12 got somewhat better. But I think I read another study that that when it was coupled with something else, it seemed to do a lot better. Um, CBT and youth, this was a bigger study, 215 people um, looking at hoarding plus OCD versus OCD. CBT didn't differ between the two. Although um, Saxena, which is one of the other uh, authors we see a lot, Mm -hmm. said "Eh, maybe not so much. The uh, CBT overall does seem to help when you look at it in a randomized controlled trial with a wait list. Uh, again, I don't know. I, th- I think using CBT in the community still probably is better where you actually go in the house and the test is in front of you. How, you know, how, did, did you have some sort of negative outcome by getting rid of that, right? Uh, SSRIs, venlafaxine, uh, 24 people in a trial, 23 completed, 30. 2% reduction in the uh, SRI savings. Savings? Savings. Oh, uh, never. It, one of the measures. Yeah. <laughs> savings inventory revised. Yeah, I probably oh, have that yeah. backwards. So, of the people, 70% were responders. That's not recovers, that's responders, so some benefit. Paroxetine, uh, again, some of these trials are really difficult. It seemed to help equally. People who have OCD versus people who have OCD and hoarding. I don't know what to make of that, right, because it was before the DSM. Um, a group, another group with CBT, this was molding, and maybe this gives you a little bit of pause with CBT. 14 of 77 people who started the trial uh, had a clinically significant change. Now, that's more than responding, but a clinically significant change. There's a huge dropout rate. Nearly half the people uh, dropped out. So a lot of data ish I think the best data is probably still with with uh, with probably CBT probably crest better than anything um, yeah. bibliotherapy I'm I'm a fan of having a self-help group that goes with that I think an SSRI or the SNRI venlafaxine is probably not unreasonable um, but again these are all small incremental additions to the overall treatment I don't know that we have a home run treatment for this yet that was kind of my takeaway. Yeah. Thoughts on that from you guys? No, I, I totally agree. I think that CBT is is the best thing that we have right now. And yeah, I agree. And like I said, there's more work that needs to be done to kind of work towards that. But if we had anything, that's the direction I'd take it because that's what we know. Best data, and I, I suspect probably a case management CBT where you had somebody in the house. So this crust stuff, I think. Yeah, the crust. 
there was some, I th is it the VA that's pushing Crest? I couldn't tell for sure. There was an article where they said, hey, there are a lot of people that are hoarding that are veterans who are disabled, and we're not looking at that very closely. We need to look at this more closely. And I don't know if some of the Crest stuff came to that. I looked at clinicaltrials.gov. There are about 30 trials in progress, some with results that are up. I think mostly people are trending towards the studies with Crest or maybe Crest with CBT or maybe Crest with case management. They're doing some modifications of that to try and get the best possible kind of out of what tools we have now. I am intrigued to see what comes out of uh, RTMS though. I, I, I think that's an interesting strategy and N of one makes me interested. <laughs> what have we not talked about that uh, we need to address still? Think we got it? Yeah. Yeah, I think we hit all the main aspects of it. I think just uh, like one of the big key things with this that um, big take home, especially for your screening for this, is keep those open-ended questions going because uh, we had a little experience with a patient here. We just kind of asked some open-ended questions and um, you tend to clue and key in on it once you get yeah. them talking a little bit more about it and just the way in which they respond in that uh, yeah. That connection to whatever um, they may be hoarding, yeah. in a sense, or you think that they may I be. I mean, when patients are admitted here, do you always ask a specific question about hoarding? No, generally we have a sense of what led to the admission here. We know the history fairly well. Um, hoarding is something that rarely, rarely arrives here, for whatever reason. Right. Um, I think what... I want to kind of piggyback on what you said, Jason, and that is those open-ended questions. I'm anxious. Okay, well, let's get you an antidepressant yeah. for that anxiety. Let's get you into CBT for that anxiety. Um, one more question might give you a totally different pathway, right? Any idea why you're anxious? Well, yes, they're trying to clean my house out. <laughs> Tell me a little more, right? Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to listen, I don't feel like I can manage the things around me. I'm always stressed out. I'm keyed up. I'm tense. Which is? Generalizing anxiety. Boom. <laughs> nice. You crack me up. You always look at him for the answer and you always know it. Well, I also look at Yasmin too. I was like, I think we swap off on that. <laughs> you guys like look at each other. Who's going to answer this? We both know it. Uh, take home thoughts then. My take home thought is I'm starting to think about my clutter ratio in my office, and I'm wondering if I can uh, reduce my clutter ratio dramatically by this time next week. Maybe I'll get rid of the picture of the grandchildren. Not the grandchildren. <laughs> I, was I was kidding. And the second thing I think that was my take-home message was there is this uniquely strange attachment to objects. Right? This seems to be all about the way somebody feels about the object. So I think if, if I need to figure out how to sort out a hoarding disorder now, the, the questions I'm asking are, tell me about what you collect. Why do you collect it? What if you see something and you can't collect it? What, what, what happens if somebody tries to throw that away? What, what are your thoughts about that object, right? that item, that physical item that has no reciprocal emotions for you? And I think that's kind of how I would try and approach that. Now, those are obviously very, like, off the cuff, and I'm sure that with more time as I practice those, those will flow a little bit better. But I think that's kind of the direction I would go, is ask about the meaning of the object to you. 
why is it you hang on to that? And that would help me know about the distinction between OCD and hoarding, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like I was as I was watching this show growing up, I remember being so angry at these families, like at the at the, you know, like people with hoarding disorder because as I mentioned earlier, like it's such a a self-destructive behavior and you are essentially cutting yourself off like you can't you can't have healthy relationships if your house is the way that it is and but after doing this research and preparing for this podcast i learned that um, these objects you know they become a source of comfort and it's a source of memory for them and it's they have all of these emotions attached to these to these objects so it's made me more empathetic towards these patients and i'm better equipped on how to approach them and talk to them about objects you know for my future patients so yeah see where it goes huh yeah (laughs) any other take-homes that way Jason's really stuck when I look at him. <laughs> <laughs> Any other take-homes, Jason? Uh, I think it's just a lot of, I guess, where my focus has been. It's, uh, you know, with hoarding disorder, but just anything in medicine, you know, those open-ended questions and getting down right to the root um, of it all because it's not just hoarding disorder. We need to ask open-ended questions. You know, it's not just psych. No. <laughs> I feel like... Uh, there'd be a lot more quality care and a lot more done for patients if we're just a little bit more open-ended and allowing them to tell us their story rather than jump on the first looking diagnosis that's going on. I, I think you've also observed that we're able to move through a lot of information with open-ended con- uh, questions. I think you've watched that on the unit. Hopefully mm-hmm. you've had other experiences with other attendings where you're seeing those open-ended questions allow you to get more information. And uh, I, I think... It's very easy to say, you're more anxious, are you not sleeping at night, are you, you know, having headaches? Yeah. You know, tell me about Checklist. the other things that are associated with your anxiety. Check, 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 right? Well, and as medical students, I feel like that's sometimes how we're kind of wired because, at least for us, you know, we do a lot of these practice, you know, history taking and things, and it's like, oh, did I hit that check mark because I need to make sure I pass this, or did I get full marks? You know, we're so focused on that, and it's more like, open it up like you said and you know and let that lead the discussion and you know in the end you look back they're all checked off but it definitely comes in a a lot I think it's more conversational way I think one of the things I'm learning along those lines is that here's what I understood that kind of so so what you're saying is blah 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 and it's an honest inquiry to see if I got the information correctly right I think it's so easy to to you have that sound like a platitude but when you're honestly inquiring, did I get this right, it flows well, too. Because I, I think you guys saw over and over where I didn't quite get it right. And I'd have to ask, okay, so is this what I what you were trying to say? And then maybe after the third try, I would still not be there and somebody jump in and save me. But uh, <laughs> I, I think there's something about those open-ended questions and clarifying questions. And, and here's what I'm catching from me. Here's, here's what I'm understanding you saying. I, that still feels a little clunky, but... Right, so so you're telling me X, Y, and Z. Yes, I am. Excellent. We're on the same page now, and let's keep pulling forward. Yeah. But I, I like that you like that, and I liked your take home too. Empathy 
and listening. Seems like good things to uh, take away from a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you going to say something else, Yasmin? Oh, no. I mean, you say, you describe it as clunky, but I think it's better to go down that route than completely <laughs> skip the question and not get deeper into the answer, you know? Yeah, I, I think the way that I like it to work for my personality and my nature best is to say, oh, so, so um, both this and this are tough. Yeah, and, and, right, and then you get that feedback of what you might be missing. So, so I can just have those little kind of um, jump in, oh, this, this, and this, right? And I think when I, that's what fits with my personality best. So everybody finds some way to engage somebody to check what they're hearing, to keep the questions going, to have our patients feel comfortable telling us what they're saying, right? And uh, however that strategy is, having a few tools like open-ended questions really does the trick. Guys, I think we probably better stop. We're at the hour eight minute mark, and I think we thought this would be a 40 minute podcast. Yes. <laughs> uh, anything else from either of the two of you? No. If not, on that note, team out. Team out. Team out. <laughs>